Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast As always, one man's view of the changing world The changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life If times get tough Or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Tuesday, October 27, 2009. This is episode 304 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a day late. It's a day late because yesterday I made a command decision in the field that conditions were too dangerous for podcasting. And that is because if this is your first show, I podcast mobile from my personal mobile studio which is my 2006 Doc 5 Jetta Diesel TDI. And um, with that, yesterday it was not pouring and it was not misting. It was that in-between mist pour rain that is just nasty and the streets are nasty and everything and you can barely see. And uh, I figured that yesterday it was just too dangerous to risk trying to do this show while I'm driving on the highway. And if I ended up in a drainage ditch or underneath a semi-truck, that would severely impair my ability to do shows for you in the future, so rather than have you lose me for good, I had you lose me for one day. I hope it wasn't too big of a, a loss for folks, and uh, do apologize for it. I hate missing shows for you guys. Uh, with that, let's tell you, today will be a listener question show, since I didn't get to do it yesterday like I normally do on Monday, I pushed it to today. I also want to let you guys know I am taking another trip to the Bug Out location Friday and Monday. I will be gone. It looks like I'll have a show banked at least for Friday. I can not guarantee a show on Monday, but I'm going to see what I can do to sort that out for you over the next couple days. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the housekeeping. First of all, make sure that you're supporting our sponsors. Sponsors of the day for today's show are Tactical Response Gear, James Jaeger's Operation, great equipment, great training, uh, great training aids, you name it, they've got it. Anything that you could possibly need from a tactical response angle. Additionally, second sponsor of the day, SOE Tactical Gear. Um, Tactical Response Gear actually sells SOE gear, so you can buy your SOE gear from Tactical Response or directly from SOE. Now, let me tell you a little bit about SOE and John Willis. Uh, John Willis started supporting this show when there was less than 100 people that listened to it. He's given out thousands of dollars of free equipment that has been given out to the audience in the listener contest. Um, He sponsored Stocking for Soldiers last year and sent a tremendous amount of stuff over to our men overseas. He's just a good, solid, all-around operator. And the equipment that he builds, when his competitors want to criticize it, they call it overbuilt. And that's a way of saying it doesn't wear out. So I'll tell you what, if you're looking for some good equipment, check out SOE. Next, get involved with our forum. Leave it at that today. Next, uh, if you think this show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. $80 worth of free retail value stuff on day one, which will more than pay for your first year of membership. You can support us with a contribution of $5 a month or $50 a year. Uh, $5 a month works out to a quarter. $50 a year works out to about two dimes per episode of the Survival Podcast to support what we're doing. Um, next, I want—I made an announcement yesterday on the site, but I wanted to say this here. Um, 
a little bit longer, I guess, housekeeping section today, but I realized that I wasn't getting a lot of people subscribing to my channel on YouTube, and then I realized it's because, like, I didn't have a link to my YouTube channel on the site, which I thought was uh, pretty lame for a guy that's supposed to know what he's doing with web marketing. I did have a Facebook and a Twitter link, but they weren't real prominent. So if you go to the site now and you look at our center column and you scroll down underneath the uh, opt-in form where you can get uh, automatic email updates of new shows being published and special announcements for me, you'll see a whole bunch of little badges there now for our YouTube, our Facebook, and our Twitter, and LinkedIn as well. I don't really mess with LinkedIn, but I put it there because some people like it. Um, But I would appreciate you, if you could, for me, subscribing to my YouTube channel. Uh, That'll give you notifications from your YouTube account when I uh, publish new YouTube videos. And I'm about to unleash what's called the product showcase for our sponsors, and I can do them a better service if I have more listeners subscribed to my YouTube channel, so I'd appreciate that. Last but not least, before we get into the uh, questions today, another thing I wanted to let you guys know about. This is cool. We've just pre-launched the uh, Survival Podcast Gear Store, where we're going to be making available to the audience things like T-shirts, badges, decals, challenge coins, and some other really cool stuff. Uh, Some pretty cool uh, TSP-branded survival tools. Uh, This is all coming down the pike. Right now, you can pre-order shirts, decals, and badges, and that's it. And they're pre-ordered. They'll ship sometime in November, but the store is open for pre-orders, and uh, the faster we we, we throw some pre-orders in there, uh, the quicker we're going to have the quantity ideas we need, because the T-shirts are the things that are bugging us. We don't want to order the wrong size. So if you want a Survival Podcast T-shirt, get in there, pre-order yours. We guarantee you'll have it in November at some point. No problem making sure you'll have stuff for Christmas time. So if you got a TSP addict in the house and you want to get some gear, go on in there and pre-order and check out the store. And keep an eye on it because really cool stuff is on the way. There's some stuff coming that nobody even knows about yet uh, that's going to be kind of really unique to us. And with that, um, I'm going to get on to the actual topic of today's show. Before I do a question, though, I want to mention an article that I read on Lou Rockwell today. And it just keeps, I keep seeing the same theme over and over and over about food supplies for the globe over the next 20 years. There ain't going to be enough food. And when you see the same thing coming out of multiple different places, from multiple analysts, and you just keep seeing it over and over again. Now, it might not be mainstream, because trust me, the mainstream media does not want to tell you this. NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox News, none of these guys really want to tell you that in the next 20 years, we might have a half a billion or more people in the world starving in addition to the people that starve now. Not There's people starving all over the world right now. That's poverty. It sucks. And that's No. This is more. It could be more than that. The population of the planet is going to grow by over 2 billion between now and 2055. 2 billion. We need to increase agricultural output by 73% of what it is now during that time frame just to feed everybody barely. It's a baseline improvement to feed everybody barely, 73%. That's based on a lot of things, like like the trends in, in China moving toward more protein and how much grain it takes to feed protein, uh, you know, to feed cows. You know, it takes more, more grain to feed a cow than it takes to just eat the grain, right? And I'm not an environmentalist in, in that respect anyway, so I'm not telling you it's wrong. I'm just telling you it's the facts. So as you put additional pressure, and then the United States continues to make uh, ethanol at 
neck break speed, which we'll talk about with the first question, and uh, taking huge amounts of corn out of the food system. And it's just a disaster waiting to happen. Right now in China, they're drilling over a 1,000 feet down, not to pump oil, to pump water. They're pumping water from what's called the fossil aquifers. A fossil aquifer is an ancient storehouse, underground sea of fresh water. And unlike the shallow aquifers, like where your well would go to, a fossil aquifer doesn't fill back up. Not in a human lifetime. Not in many human lifetimes. Maybe in a couple hundred millennia, right? Maybe. But in our lifetime, once that sucker's dry, it's gone. Well, they're sucking water out of there to water fields at an alarming rate. And when those things run dry, there ain't no more. And what are they going to do then? Right now, the Yellow River, right? Remember the Yellow River from the Korean War that borders North Korea and China? Doesn't reach the sea seven months out of the year. Now, is this because of Al Gore's global warming? Because the fat ass keeps eating too many hamburgers and farting? No. It's because they're sucking the water out of the reserves. It's not snowing enough in the Himalayas, so not enough snow melt water is getting down into India. There are all types of places where the water supply is in danger. Now the thing about this article, and what I wanted to make you think about is, they basically said there are solutions, but they can't happen overnight. And one is to go into Russia and take modern agricultural know-how and increase their output, because their output's actually less now than it was under Khrushchev. So they could be producing more. The, the, the short-sightedness of this article is this modern know-how that would increase yields in Russia and in other less developed countries is what's destroyed the agricultural output throughout the rest of the world. For a while, it worked great. That was the Green Revolution from, from after World War II forward, where the output doubled. But what happens is, by the time you farm land that way for two decades, the land is fallow. It won't grow without massive amounts of fertilizer. And the more fertilizer you put in, the more damage you do to the ground, the more fallow the ground becomes. If you go to a lot of the places that we call our breadbasket in the United States now, and you look at the soil that farmers are growing their crops in, it's depleted. They're growing in a sterile medium that's fed by chemicals. It doesn't retain water. So it requires more water. So all of the solutions are actually increasing the problem long term. Why do I bring this up today? Because I want you to understand once again that you are your own solution here. You can take some little piece of ground, even if you own a tenth of an acre, and you can make it fertile and productive. So that's a call to action today. If you haven't started your gardening and permaculture activities yet, do it. I don't care what nonsense you hear, even from guys that I have a lot of respect for that say things like, well, if you have a really nice garden and the shit hits the fan, people are going to see you as a target. People are going to see you as a target anyway. All right, In any situation where people don't have stuff and you do, people are going to see you as a target. Having a garden doesn't make you any more of a target, especially if you go out there and harvest all your food as quickly as you can when the shit hits the fan. And you defend it and you have good community and all that. It doesn't matter. We live life for today. We prepare for things to go wrong, but we live life in a way that makes it better even if nothing goes wrong. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the only hope for America when it comes to food, long term, with our money being devalued, 
The only hope for America is for Americans to start growing just a little bit of their own food everywhere, spread out across the country with a tremendous amount of redundancy in production. Because here is the trump card, the big ace of spades that no one sees coming. We all know that our money is being devalued. We all know that. You have to be, you have to have your head so deep in the sand that your ass is covered up to not understand that our money is being devalued by inflation. And it's being devalued now against the rest of the world. And the Federal Reserve and our government has made a decision to go deeper and deeper into debt. Now, the only way they can pay the debt down, the only mathematical way it's possible, is through greater inflation. Massive runaway inflation. They're going to do it on purpose. When they do that, our debt will be cheap to pay off. Because our, do- our debt is doing dollars. That's the magic of this game. So we owe the Chinese you know, umpteen billion dollars. Well, as long as we inflate our money supply, we can print our way out of our debt to the Chinese. What it does, though, is it trashes and devalues the dollar as a currency across the board. Now, we've gotten away from it, from, from doing this for years. And we got away with it because everybody else values their money on ours. We were the global standard of currency. Well, people are, are they're ready to leave. The rest of the world is ready to divest themselves of the dollar. It is going to happen. It is not an if, it is a when. And if you had somebody treating you the way we treat the rest of the world with our monetary policy, you'd do it too. You can't be against these people for doing it. We continually trash their currency by trashing our own. Now, the one thing that's kept us fed once we lost the ability to feed ourselves through you know, policy stupidity and natural evolution of our economy, in other words, less people farm today, is that our money is relatively strong. Now, it's weak against the British pound. That's a global conspiracy for the foil hatters. I mean, there's actually some truth to their conspiracy behind that one. But it's pretty strong against everything in the undeveloped world. It's strong against the Indians' money. It's strong against the Chinese money. It's strong against the Russian money. It's strong against everything in South America. It's strong against all the places we get our food. Now, when the world switches to a new reserve standard, the dollar and the dollar's been devalued, it becomes extremely weak. That makes us really good at exporting and really bad at importing. Well, what's one of our biggest imports now? Food. What's the other one? Oil. You can't fix the oil problem directly. You can fix the food problem directly. Consider that a public service announcement. But read this article. Start to understand the vulnerability in our food supply. Start to understand how the economic policy makes the vulnerability bigger. This is why I talk about economics, folks. This is why people are like, why are you talking about economics? Because it affects things like food. People don't make those connections. So let's go to the first question. I know it was a long, long intro, but that wasn't really intro. That was material that I have for you today. First question is, the guy says, why um, he's afraid that there's going to be a bank run. There's going to be a bank run. And he's got pretty good money and pretty good assets, and you know he's got some good investments, and they're diversified across commodities, gold, silver, a little bit of stocks, some ETFs. He's got a really good pol- uh, uh, investment portfolio he's put together. But he's also got quite a bit of cash, and most of it's in the bank, and he's afraid to leave it there because he's afraid there's going to be a run on the banks. I can't say to you something that's never going to happen, but I will tell you it's something you should have plenty of uh, time ahead of time to, to, to do something about. And, and I also don't think it's very probable now. Let's go back to what caused the bank run. 
uh, during the Great Depression. It caused previous, you see, you don't realize there were bank runs prior to the Great Depression. That wasn't the first time. It was a shortage of money that caused the bank run. In fact, this is how they sold us the Federal Reserve. What happened was the bank would take in a certain amount of money. So I'm Jack's bank, and you come to me and you put your money in my bank. And I held gold against the note, just like the Federal Reserve, or just like the Federal Government did. So if you gave me $1,000, you would think there's $1,000 in my bank. But what the banker would do is he would leverage and loan money out beyond what he had to take in, sometimes up to as much as 10 to 1 or 10% reserve. That's how banking worked. So I might have total deposits of a million dollars, but I might have total loans out bearing interest of $10 million. And as long as that stayed in check, things were okay. But if everybody in my bank, the million dollars of account holders came in to pull money out at one time, then I was in deep trouble. And all I could do is look at whatever loans I could call due to try to raise back the million because I had it loaned out in excess of what I took in. And I couldn't cover all the depositors. That's what caused the bank runs. That's a simplified version, but for a Q&A show, the best I can do for you. Today... <clears throat> We don't have a shortage of money. We have a surplus of money. They've printed so much money, it's almost impossible for banks to run out of money. Could an individual bank become insolvent? Yes. Then it's covered by FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And if they run out of money, the Fed just prints more money. Now, is that good for you as an overall standpoint for our economy? Do they just print money to cover anything that they fall short on? No. But it does insure your deposit. So think of it this way. If I put you in a tank in a 1910 scenario before the creation of Federal Reserve and the money ran out, we thought of the money as water, you're sitting in a tank and you're dying of dehydration because there's no water. Okay? That was what created the bank run. Today, it's like I'm pumping water. So you're not going to dehydrate. you got plenty of water to drink. But if I pump too much water in there, I'll drown you. Today, we're dealing with being drowned in dollars, not a shortage of dollars. The Federal Reserve made a promise to the government and to the people that they would come in and keep a balance. All right, they would, they would create a, an artificial balance because the natural balance wasn't working. They failed to meet their commitment because the best thing they can do is put us deeper and deeper into debt. Because remember, for every dollar we're in debt, they earn interest. And they can convert that interest instantaneously into any other form of currency or capital or commodity that they want to. So they can completely destroy our country. And because, even though they're already the wealthiest people in the world, become even more wealthy. And that's what's going on. So I wouldn't worry that much about runs on the bank. If you're that worried, put some of your money into cash and take the cash out of the bank. And another thing you can do is break your cash deposits up. Even if you don't exceed the FDIC, it's like a quarter million now. It's insane. Let's say you had 50000 Well, open three bank accounts. Put about fifteen, sixteen thousand $16,000 in each account. That way, even if one bank crumbles, and make sure the banks aren't owned by each other. And if one bank buys the other and you end up with a common hole, Move it again. There, there's, a, there's a lot of things that you can do to keep some diversity with your assets. But keeping some cash on hand is always a good idea as well. Um, next question, totally different. Guy says he's been seeing these Mitchell's Mausers, last of the Mausers to come to the country advertised for about $400 uh, in a lot of gun magazines. Do I think they're a good investment? Um, I don't know if they're a good investment. 
if you if you look at them purely as an investment standpoint, as a collector, it may be your last chance at that price point to buy this gun in this state. Um, the thing about these Mitchell's Mausers, folks, is they're very, very nice guns. Uh, they didn't sit in vats of Cosmoline uh, and soak it into their stocks for 50 years. And they were a lot of them were never issued, or they were issued very briefly. They were very well taken care of. They're clean. Their stocks are clean. Everything about them is just nice. Uh, then they have the collector grade ones, which I think are actually the ones at 400 I think they're 299 for the standard grade ones. And even the standard grade ones are very nice. Can we absolutely say these are the last of these Mausers to come to the country? No, it's a bit of an overreach, but they, they damn sure could be. I, I talked about this in an earlier show where I talked about surplus weapons. A lot of the surplus has been drying up, and a lot of additional surplus has been destroyed. Uh, for instance, when we went into Iraq, there was a tremendous opportunity for surplus weapons to come to the United States, and uh, the politicos got a hold of it and destroyed it, and it never happened. And all of the, that surplus armory, and it wasn't just AKs. There was a tremendous amount of Mosing the guns and all different types of pre-World War II-era surplus arms in Iraqi stockpiles. And uh, those weapons could have been sold into the surplus market, uh, especially here in the United States, the freest gun nation in the world still, at least for now, and uh, would have made a tremendous amount of money for the Iraqi people. And maybe could have helped finance that daggone war that was so expensive. Uh, but no, they were destroyed. So I think that now, if you're looking at the World War II era and back, anything that's really nice is the time to buy it. Um, can I tell you you could be able to turn around and sell that weapon for $700 in five years? No, but I can't tell you that it won't cost you $700 to buy it. So I wouldn't look at these things as a pure investment, but... I don't think you're going to see the price drop on them. So if you want one for your collection, if you're a collector, if you want to preserve uh, an example of this weapon, it is absolutely the time to buy it. I'll tell you this, don't customize it. Don't sporterize one of these guns. Uh, these are really nice weapons. There's a lot of cheap, beat-to-hell Mausers out there that are great for doing all that gunsmithing and Billy Bob customizing and all that. Some purist collectors get upset when you do that. Not me, but I'm telling you, the Mitchell Smousers, they're really nice weapons. Uh, they should be preserved as they are. They're going to be worth a hell of a lot more. By the time you buy one and customize it, you could have went out and bought a custom-built rifle anyway. So don't customize, don't sporterize. Uh, not the, not this great of a weapon, but if you want one for a collection, now's the time. If if you told me you have no reserves of food and no savings, and you have only four hundred dollars saved up, should you put it there? The answer would be no. But if you have the financial means to responsibly make the purchase, great personal investment for your personal collection at this time. Both those weapons and any of the especially European variety surplus arms that are in good shape that are coming in in their last shipments right now. Uh, let's look at the next question. gentleman writes to me and says he's heard that you should hunt with a dirty barrel. Um... And because with a you know a clean bore, your your bullets will fly differently. Because when you sight your weapon in, you only fire one shot from a clean bore, and then the barrel's fouled. And then you keep shooting, and then you're firing from a dirty barrel. And your groups will be different than that first clean bore shot. So should I hunt with a dirty barrel? Dirty uh, depends on what you mean by dirty. 
Let me tell you my procedure, and then you can take this and do what you want with it. When I take a hunting rifle to the range right before hunting season, and I'm going to take it out, I'm going to hunt with it. Or I have a weapon for self-defense that I've had to the range, and I'm going to keep it readily accessible for self-defense. It's not in the gun safe. It may be called on for action at any time. I go to the range with a cleaning kit. And I do my shooting, I check my zero, I get the weapon shooting the way that I want. I then run and clean the bore with patch, what have you, solvent. I make that bore crystal clean. Then I fire one shot through it to foul the barrel. I look where that shot hits, I fire a second shot through it. And I verify my zero has held with that second shot. I then wipe down the outside of the gun. I leave the barrel fouled or dirty. And that's how I leave it. And that's how I hunt with it. And this is a huge mistake made, in my opinion, by the military. Other than the average soldier is going to be in a firefight at close distances, not sniping somebody. And the fact that that bullet flies a little bit differently is probably going to be inconsequential. But the fanaticism about cleanliness with U.S. weapons in the military um, is actually, to me, a detriment. Because that dirty bore is going to guarantee a good shot. Now, why is this? Well, when you clean that barrel and you leave that residue of oil inside the barrel, yeah, it protects it, if you want to call it that. But it also changes the characteristics of the bullet when it flies down the barrel. The bullet will fly at a slightly different velocity. The oil will burn in addition to the powder. Um, The bullet will have a different traction or friction resistance against the barrel. The harmonics of the barrel due to all this will be different. So again, harmonics from an earlier show, how the barrel vibrates and oscillates shot to shot to shot will change on that first shot just a little bit. And generally what I've seen is that uh, a barrel, when it's clean, will throw the shot a bit high. And for some reason, most of my weapons seem to throw them a little bit high left. And as soon as you, you, you let that one fouling shot go through, we're right back dead on the point of aim. So, yes, the reason I gave a long answer is dirty could mean you go to the range, you fire two boxes of shells, you put 40, 50 rounds through it, and you don't clean it. And it's like just built up with a huge amount of residue. That I, that I don't stand for. Now, where does this all come from? Prior to the advent of smokeless powder and non-corrosive primers, if you didn't clean a weapon after firing it, the powder residue or primer residue was corrosive and ate away at your barrel. That was what created the fanaticism. That if you left the barrel dirty, it would actually have the metal eaten away over time. Now, so if you're shooting a muzzle loader with black powder or something like that, or black powder cartridge, you have no choice. You've got to clean your weapon at the end of a shooting session, or you'll eat away the steel. That's just not the case. Modern smokeless propellants and modern primers are non-corrosive. Nothing's going to happen. And inside, if you have a clean barrel, and you fire a shot or two through it, unless you run water down there or store it in a humid environment, the inside of your barrel's not going to rust. That's nonsense. It's not going to happen. All right, so that answers that. Uh, before I go on to the next question, this guy also asked about barrel break-in procedures. And he said he's seen books and videos and stuff. What are my thoughts on barrel break-in? Barrel break-in is just dumb. Um, 
I know I'm going to infuriate some people here. Some people are going to tell me about this procedure and that procedure. All I can tell you is that I've owned, God, I guess, several dozen, if not close to 50 rifles in my life. To this day, I own at least 30 rifles. I've never broken a barrel in in my life, and all of my weapons shoot very well. Barrel breaking requires a, the firing of a very, if you do it by procedure, a very large number of shots. And if you're firing kind of low-pressure rounds at 30-30 or something like that, it's, it's, it, I guess it's not that big a deal. When you start firing high-velocity centifiers, like 270 Winchesters, uh, 22-250s, and things like that, the barrels have a life expectancy to begin with. That very high-velocity comes at a price. Eventually, you will wear that barrel out. Now, if you go pump it a couple hundred rounds through it in a break-in procedure, um, well, you've just shortened the lifespan of that barrel. To me, barrel break-in is you make sure that you've cleaned your weapon before you fire it the first time, that any cosmoline or residue has been removed from the barrel. You go out and you fire it a couple times. You start zeroing it in. You, you, you fire it enough times to zero it in, clean it, and put a fouling shot through it, you're good. All right, let's be realistic about this. Now, why do I think this whole mythology about barrel breaking came about? Because I think the custom barrel makers like to sell you barrels. Now, I know people are going to object to that. Comment away, flame away. I'm not even going to respond to it. I've given you my opinion. You do what you want to with it. But unless you're out shooting bench dress competitions, the, the guy that wins shoots .1 of an inch better than the other guy. This is nonsense, and all it does is wear out your barrel. All right, let's go on to the next one. Guy says, hey, you say keep 15% of your assets and your savings and assets in the silver. I agree. Before we go on to the question, let's clarify what I've said, because that is not what I've said. I have said, I recommend that in your investments and savings, it's not just retirement account, this is your total savings, this is cash, um, your entire investment portfolio, whether or not it's deferred till retirement matters not, should have a range of 5 to 15% of investment in gold, silver, and or other metals. And that could be in any form. I do think that close to 5% should be in physical metal that you hold in your hand and keep in your house. But if you're going to go up to 15%, I'm not recommending that at all. I'm recommending things like if you're going to do 15%, then maybe you have 5% in gold. Maybe you have 2 or 3% in silver. Maybe you have some percentage in um, gold, gold mining stocks. Maybe you have a little bit of a platinum uh, in addition to that. Maybe you go into a gold ETF. Uh, maybe you go into uh, a, a paper gold asset portfolio mix. All right. There's Maybe even at 15%, you might even be hedging a little bit with some commodity investment into copper. Again, to do these things, you don't come to me, you go to a qualified financial advisor that specializes in creative investments. That doesn't sit there and say, just buy mutual funds and wait. Well, what the hell do I need to give you 1.5% then for, um, you know, dickhead? I just That's how I feel about these guys. All you need is a good grounded portfolio of balanced mutual funds. Then get out of my face. You don't, you don't need it. I don't need you. Right? So a good quality advisor that can take you through... Getting this portion of your assets and seeing them as a hedge against the other things you're doing and doing that. So up to 15% I'm cool with, but please don't say that I just said 15% flat. I did not. In fact, I'm not that high. I'm about 10. 
Right? That's just my comfort range that I'm okay saying. So now that we're past that, does how much should you keep on hand for barter, right? In physical silver at your home. Well, let's look at this question. He also said, can you, can you tell us in dollars? Well, no. Because dollars change. So if I told you have have $1,000 worth of silver for barter, that number will change tomorrow. How many ounces that represents. So let's look at ounces first. I'd say if you don't have in the neighborhood of 10 ounces of silver in physical metal, especially at silver prices where they've been over the past 20 years, it's cheap. That hedge is cheap. Then you probably need to keep working until you get to at least 10 ounces. I don't think that's necessarily enough. And I think, you know, on a, you know, 5 to 15% ratio, even if you only went with 2% in silver, a person in their 40s should have enough savings that they're well over 10 ounces of silver as I have to get over and some guy doesn't want, you're a, you're a, you ain't had a, you guys ain't had an auto rant lately. You're a jerk ass, you know that? You're an asshole. Alright, there's an auto rant for you guys that have been waiting for one. Yeah, screw you! Alright, so you should be higher than that anyway, just based on those percentage numbers. But let's look at silver barter again, because this is a this is a point of contention for a lot of people because they don't understand it. Please understand that silver for barter is a situation now I'm cutting him off again because he's pissed me off. Alright, so silver for barter is is a is a second tier of the shit hit the fan. If we have a real shit hit the fan a breakdown, the first thing that people are gonna want is money. Everybody's gonna start price gouging and dollars will be king until we get to a point where people realize I can't eat dollars and they're not really, you know, the economy's gone and it's not coming back. So this is one specific type of scenario where this would happen. So now the dollar's been devalued and nobody will touch it anymore. So now the next thing's going to happen is people are going to start bartering goods. I'll trade you a can of beans for a, for a couple, uh, you know, shotgun shells or something like that. Right? Or I'm going to trade you a can of beans for a can of tuna fish. That will be the next level of barter. Silver will be part of the rebuilding of a local first and then eventually a national economy. People will eventually want to try to put society back together once the shit is totally hit the fan and the stuff stopped flying off the blades and people start trying to rebuild society. So it's a longer term view into a barter situation. So as long as wherever you're storing your silver you think you'll be able to get to, I don't think you need that much on hand for barter. But the neighborhood of 10 ounces you can put your hands on, I'm not so much concerned with it for barter, I'm concerned with it as a hedge of wealth. Um, If you look at 10 ounces of silver at about... uh, what is silver now? Sixteen dollars. That's one hundred sixty bucks, right? So that's not much, and it's an absolute minimum that I think you should have, just in case silver one day jacks up to fifty bucks an ounce. At least you've made some money there. Realistically, I think that long term you should be looking at having at least a hundred ounces of silver. Which sounds like a term, 100 ounces. Wow, that's a lot. We're talking about sixteen to $1,800 based on current spot prices. And I'm not, remember, I'm not saying to go out necessarily, if you don't own silver, to go out and plunk down two grand on silver today. I'm saying to slowly build this up over time, an ounce here, an ounce there, and, and build up this, this other piece of wealth. What that does for you is assuming maybe you keep a couple ounces of gold, 
you have a divisible, immediately exchangeable form of wealth. So maybe you have, with gold and silver together, a combined value of four or $5,000. And what that means is you can go anywhere in the world and just take that and immediately convert it to a currency privately anywhere in the world. That's the reason I recommend you have some level of that asset value preserved at home where you can put your hands on it. So 10 ounces is a floor. That's like you have no silver. Go out and break two C notes and, and have something, right? 10 silver eagles, for God's sakes. 10 ounces of uh, a silver held in U.S. You know, pre-64 coins. So, you know, you're looking at about uh, 12, 13 ounces of U.S. coinage to end up with that amount of silver content. But don't focus so much on well whether I'll be able to barter this stuff or not. And please don't put you know if you have a two hundred thousand dollar investment portfolio, don't go buy thirty thousand dollars worth of silver and keep it in your basement. It's probably not the safest way to handle things. All right. So hopefully that answers that question. Let's uh, move on from there. Guy asks, this is a question that goes right back to my opening uh, little story for you about food shortages and uh, ethanol. Why hasn't more been done with gas or alcohol as a gas? Um, you know, he said, you know, you talked about the Nervaises and how, yeah, they run their diesel vehicles very inexpensively because they get cooking oil from the restaurants that they sell the food to. But they're still dependent on that restaurant. They can't grow diesel fuel in their backyard. But we can grow grain. We can grow any kind of starch that can be converted to alcohol. You make, you can make, uh, you know, basically vodka uh, as a form of moonshine out of potatoes. So since you can make alcohol relatively easily, it's an easy technology to master. Why haven't we done more with, you know, alcohol as a gas? The answer is we're doing it in a big way right now with ethanol. And we're converting massive amounts of food into gasoline. And it doesn't make a drop in the demand bucket. Here's the problem with it. It's highly corrosive, way more corrosive than gasoline. If you put pure ethanol in most modern vehicles, most, not the ones that are rated to run it, but if you put too much ethanol in most vehicles, it will destroy them. It eats the fuel lines, it destroys the fuel pump, it corrodes the gas tank. It's a terrible fuel. It really is. Now, if we built vehicles that were designed to run it, then it becomes a decent fuel from a standpoint of of actually functioning in the vehicle. It'll work. And, yes, we can produce it. But this is coming from a person who I can tell has never made moonshine. Let's call it moonshine, right? Because it takes an awful lot of grain to make a few gallons. And if you just want to make enough to be able to drive your car to work every day, we're talking about you need a farm. And all you're doing is farming to run your vehicle. Now, if we ever got to shit hits the fan and, you know, I mean, you just got to have some way to get a vehicle running, I guess it's an option. But overall, it's a terrible option. It's failed on the economy. Right now, if you set up a still and start making moonshine to drink, which kind of makes sense to me to, to do that if it was legal, the federal government will put you in jail. You're, you're a shiner, right? You're out there, you know, making moonshine. It's illegal. It violates federal law. You're going to jail, boy. You sell it, you're really going to jail. But if you do the same process and call it ethanol, and you sell it to people for use as ethanol, the government will pay you 45 cents a gallon in a subsidy. 
And even with that, it's, it's an economic failure because it's an energy loss leader. It takes more energy to make a gallon of alcohol than the alcohol produces back. That's why more hasn't been done with it, because it's a terrible form of fuel. A better solution would be to develop an electric car, a car that really can run on electricity, and start generating your own power with solar and wind for your home and providing a a way to plug that vehicle in to charge up. That technology is being made better and better all the time. One of the big limitations with that technology, though, is, for all you environmentalists, uh, the batteries that run those vehicles use large amounts of rare earth elements like cadmium and lithium. And they're in very short supply, and the Chinese are locking up the cheap supply of those, so those batteries are becoming more expensive, and mining them produces a tremendous amount of toxic waste. So all of you people with hybrids that think you're saving the planet are actually doing more, more harm than something simple like my jet of diesel's doing. The reality is there's plenty of oil, but our policymakers are too stupid to allow it to be extracted from the earth and converted into usable fuel. And the automakers have failed miserably to make engines as efficient as they possibly can be. If those two things were done, modern society would be a lot better off. For a, you know, a kind of a primitive society created by a shit at the fan, I would look to creating as much range out of an electric vehicle as you can from a homegrown standpoint, and I would look at putting in a good solar array and a good, uh, a good wind bank, and I would produce as much of my own electricity as I can, and I would, it would make my home as efficient as possible, and I would use any surplus to charge that vehicle. And in a shit at the fan, you're not going to be driving around the way we do. Right, every day, take a ride here, cruising there. It's going to be you go when you need to go. So that with some uh, additional charging, maybe a couple solar panels on the vehicle itself, giving it some field charging ability, that's probably the way forward. And if modern technology would get on that and maximize that, I think we could realize that dream. Just know one thing, you guys, I think you're going to save a lot of money on gasoline. When modern technology does it, when it costs you a dollar to go 100 miles with your vehicle because you either use no gas or so little gas um, that that it's cheap, Uh, the government will tax you to drive on the road. Everybody will have something that looks like a toll tag, and you'll be charged everywhere you go on a city or state or interstate highway. It's going to happen. That's where we're headed with that. So just know that um, that's coming our way next. Okay, young man writes me, says, I'm new to the job market. How do I overcome the experience argument when I'm trying to get a job? He's looking for kind of, you know, a blue-collar job manufacturing uh, type, you know, shift work. Uh, good old-fashioned blue-collar, I'm willing to work hard job. And uh, But whenever I go to interview, there's so many people on a job market now, they can always get somebody more experienced than me. And how do I overcome that? Well, you look the hiring manager straight in the eye and say, look, I'm hardworking, I'm willing to do this job, and I can learn quickly. To hire me over someone with somebody with experience, you're taking a risk. I'm willing to share that risk with you. Here's the deal I'll make with you. I will work for two weeks as an unpaid intern or an unpaid apprentice, however you want to call it. I'll show up every day on time, I'll do my job, I'll learn the trade that fast. Maybe it's three weeks, depending on what you got to learn. Maybe it's a month. I'll do it. I won't charge you a penny. 
At the end of that period, you decide whether you want to hire me or not. If you don't want to hire me, I'll shake your hand and thank you for giving me some valuable experience, and I'm going to go out and look for a job working for one of your competitors. I'm sure they'll want to hire me then. You never take your eyes off that man's eyes when you make that statement. You look him dead in the eye, and you're dead serious, and you mean it. Uh, Do that two or three times, you'll find a job. That's all it'll take. Uh, You may even find yourself hired without having to actually do the freebie, but be prepared to do it. Because you may be in a situation where the guy says, look, I can't do that because of insurance and shop requirements or whatever. I can't bring you in here that way. But you've shown me something. You're sincere. You're willing to do this. I'll tell you what. I'll give you an entry-level position. It's going to pay less than most of the people on the floor. But you'll get a start. But that's how you overcome that. That's how easy that is. And the problem is that most of our young people don't have the ethics to do that today. So if you have the ethics and sincerity to do that, you're going to find a job. It used to be that's how everybody got a job. In small business America, in the old days, everybody, when you you got your first job, you apprenticed. You got paid nothing. And after you were there a while, you became valuable to the the business owner, he started to give you a salary. And then you worked your way up from apprentice to master in whatever trade or craft it was. That's how everything was. All you got to do is go back to that, because intrinsically as humans, that's who we are. We know that we shouldn't be paying a person to provide a service that they're not yet capable of providing. In other words, if a guy showed up to, to put a roof on your house, and he wanted to charge you the same as another roofer, but he'd never on a roof before, you wouldn't hire them. If you knew how to do a roof, you wouldn't do the job for him and then pay him to do it. You'd want him to learn on his own and then apply the experience that you're willing to compensate him for. So there's your answer. Go look that guy straight in the eye, tell him and mean it, I'll work for free for whatever period of time you believe you need to become at least reasonably efficient at providing a service that's there. And at the end of that time, you make a decision whether you want to hire me or not, because I'm not going to do it forever, but I will prove myself first. Nobody's doing that. Nobody in America today is doing that because nobody has the integrity to do that. You might say, well, I'm working for free, and how do I pay my bills? You're unemployed. You're either unemployed for another two to three weeks to four weeks right now with no experience and no opportunity and continually getting the door shut in your face, or you're you're unpaid while you're gaining the one thing that's preventing you from being hired, the experience. So there's my answer to that. Another great question, guys, is can you tell us what you got out of the military for today? What in your life is better today because you were in the military? Now, I talk about my military service a lot because it was special to me. And I think it was more special to me because I spent time in Panama and Honduras, in, in third world parts of the world. And I think if I had been stationed in, like, Georgia or something, I don't think it would have been as big a deal for me. You know, I, I really don't. And I served during the first Gulf War, but that was for most troops that weren't combat troops. I wasn't a combat troop. It was kind of a non-event. I mean, it was scary because you thought about what could happen. But, I mean, you know, really it was a very short-term thing. It's nothing like what the guys are going through now. So that was a very small part of it for me. But being in Honduras and Panama had a huge impact on my life. And I think I could have been in Honduras in the Peace Corps or as a missionary or as a volunteer and gotten a lot of the same things out of that experience. And that's one of the biggest things, is spending time in a third world country. It made me so appreciate what I have today. It made me value 
this country and this culture that people are devaluing. It's why I get so damn angry when I see our nation idolizing stupidity. I mean, it's one thing that we, we, we take people that are superficial and shallow and greedy and make idols out of them and make celebrities out of them. That's, that's bad, but it's recoverable. Because sooner or later, people come to their senses and realize that that's not the way to be. But when we start idolizing stupidity, and we do in this country, some of the most famous people in this country, the wealthiest people in this country in the entertainment business, are mind-numbingly stupid. Paris Hilton, there I said it. Britney Spears, oh, I said it again. Oh, oh. And, and it's, it's just just dumb. And, and being in a third world nation and seeing people that were impoverished, that struggle for everything, and then watching in this country how we throw money at the feet of these idiots has made my life better because I'm not sucked into that world for a tenth of a second. It's made me look at everything around me and go, what else can I do with that? What can I improvise out of that? It's made me not throw things away just because they're quote-unquote broken. Can I fix it first before I throw it away? Even if I don't want it anymore, can I find someone to give it to rather than throw it in a dumpster? Would Goodwill want this? Would the shelter want this? It's instilled those values in me to live in those countries. And I've, if, you, if you look up my show, uh, Lessons from the Agawan River Valley, just type in Agawan River Valley in the search box on the survivalpodcast.com, and you listen to that show, you'll hear a lot more about what I learned from that experience. Now, the military overall. Let me tell you, it's been a long time coming, and it was a show with Dave Canterbury where I really figured out what the military did for me. It put structure in my life. It taught me how to learn, and it taught me how to teach. The military is the most efficient teaching machine in the world. You take a kid off the street that's never seen a gun in his life, never been in the woods in his life, and in eight weeks he's a relatively proficient soldier. Our college system is infinitesimally inadequate in comparison to that. You take a kid eight weeks out of college, he still doesn't know his butt from a hole in the ground. He really doesn't. But eight weeks in the military, and I can deploy you anywhere in the world, inside of any unit, you can fall in that command structure, know how to take orders, and know how to do your job. That's amazing. You take a guy like me, now I was, you know, I kind of had a predisposition for both of these, but I went to school as a mechanic. And basically, you don't teach him everything about a vehicle. You teach him about tools. You teach him basics about the vehicle. You give him some hands-on instructions. But you teach him the systems and procedures of troubleshooting and how to use technical manuals. And you can give him a toolkit and send him out. He can fix anything in his echelon of maintenance on a vehicle. And you can get that done in about 13 weeks. And at the end of that 8 and 13 week period, you have a well-disciplined soldier that doesn't look at his task as a task. He sees it as a mission. But this way, a task and a mission, you can fail at a task. You don't fail at a mission. And that mentality has been a huge boost in my life. But it's the training aspect that's been the biggest. I couldn't do this show without my military experience. Even though very little of my direct military experience applies to things like good sporting weapons, backpacking, storing food, investing, 
protecting your assets, home defense. Very little of that in the military. They don't teach you to defend your house in the military. They don't teach you to kick a door in and go into somebody else's house. Right? It's a totally different operational methodology. But the method of speaking so that you're understood clearly, the organizational process, everything that I do on this show is broken into modules and things that piece together so that the person can be educated over time, one piece at a time. But even though they're all individual pieces, they're all interlocking. If you go back and listen to this show from episode one up till now, the education you get will be immense. Not because I'm brilliant, but because the material is accurate and properly assembled. That assembly of material, that ability to take an organized material, is one of the big things that the military brought to my life. The other thing is to be able to organize business, to organize people, to lead, and to follow. See, when I went into my early career, I wasn't in charge. I was a follower. But I knew how to follow so well that I followed everything to the letter that I was asked to do. And when I saw a problem, instead of complaining about it, I looked for a way to improve the efficiency around the problem. And the second I didn't disrupt the leader and say, you need to do this this way, but the second I was given the opportunity to lead, I would first test the solution by doing it myself and taking responsibility for it. So if it didn't work, the guy working for me didn't get screwed over. When I verified its effectiveness, I handed it down through my chain of command, whether it was one person or 20 people working for me, and we took that efficiency and we used it across the board. That made me very successful in the corporate world. So these are the things the military brought to my life that have very little to do directly with an M16 or general orders or an oath to the Constitution, other than the last one. You know what? That oath to the Constitution brought a huge amount to my life. A massive amount to my life. Because the passion that's in me for my nation goes back to the day that I put my hand up as a 17-year-old kid. And I said, I will uphold and defend the Constitution. Because when they handed me my DD-214 and I left with an honorable discharge and went back to being a civilian, their authority over me ceased. My oath did not cease. I have never forgotten my oath. I will never forget my oath. And your oath doesn't end because a type of employment ends. An oath is for the rest of your life. And that oath has brought a lot to me. And I'll throw in a little plug here for an organization called Oath Keepers. Uh, Even though I'm prior service, I'm not active duty, and I'm not in law enforcement, I have taken the oath. The oath to follow my original oath. And I encourage you, especially if you're a law enforcement officer, to learn about Oath Keepers. If you're prior service military, if you're military, learn about Oath Keepers. National Guard. And basically, Oath Keepers is a place where... Hold on. Microphone malfunction. Oath Keepers is a place where people that might ever be put in a place... um, to interfere with the rights of the people, say, hey, I took the oath, and I will follow the oath, and I will not violate the Constitution. And there's ten things that Oath Keepers promise not to do, and a lot of people in the government don't seem to like Oath Keepers. Well, you shouldn't have a problem with Oath Keepers. Because a man that says, I took this oath and I'll follow it, which is basically all this stuff is. If the order's illegal, I won't follow it. Well, that's what you're required to do. So learn about Oath Keepers, because that oath, that's a big thing that it gave me. Last question. Guy says, uh, I'm trying to consider whether to buy some land. He found some 
unbelievably inexpensive land. It's five miles from uh, some railroad tracks, and it's between some small circles of uh, commercial farming. Who's the things it has against it? It's up in the high desert, and um, he wants to know if that should prevent him from buying the land. I don't know. Uh, those things, no. Those don't worry me. The fact there's some commercial farming in the area, that it's actually good. That means you can grow stuff there. The fact that there's a railroad in the area, that means that if they ever need to get supplies into the area, it can be done. Five miles from the railroad, far enough that you're not, you know, a guy can't see you from the boxcar during his shit at the fan and he's traveling around if the trains are even running. So I don't have a problem there. There's two things I'm concerned with. One, you say high desert, so I'm worried how close to the Mexican border is the land. If it's too close to the Mexican border, if it's land that's routinely traveled across by migrants, I would be concerned, especially in a major shit hit the fan. Especially then. Because then you'll see a massive flow of refugees out of Mexico, especially if the Mexican state fails, which is possible. It's, at this point, it's actually probable. There's a huge drug war going on along the border, so I would not be comfortable if you're too close to the border, and too close is going to be something you're going to have to be subjective with and make a decision yourself. My view is, if it's if it's something that gets any foot traffic from migrants, I, I'd have a real concern, because you're going to have to worry about stuff being damaged or stolen, even if nothing goes wrong. The next question is, this is a pure bug out location, you'll only go there if um, if something hits the fan, or is it like you're going to become a homestead for you? I'm much more comfortable with it as a homestead. There's a lot of traffic around there. It sounds just remote enough to be a great target for people to steal from, and sooner or later, vermin will find out. So unless you have a neighbor line of sight that you can trust, shake hands with, and maybe pay them 50 bucks a month to keep an eye on your place, I don't know that it would make a good bug out location, because it's... it's not remote enough and too remote at the same time, if that makes sense. If you're going to homestead it, it might be a great place to go. It just might be awesome. There's going to be a place you can get to every couple weeks, because even though it's out there, it's close to where you live, it still might be awesome. But I'd be a little bit cautious whether it is a pure bug out location if you intend to do a lot with it. Right, a lot of development with it remotely if you don't have anybody that can kind of safeguard it for you. Um, my last question is water. High desert, not a lot of water there. Commercial farming must be a water supply somewhere. Is it possible to put a well in? Is there already a well on the property? How much water does the well produce? If there's not a well and you're going to put one in, how much is it going to cost? What is going to be the flow rate from the well? If the flow rate from the well is higher in certain parts of the year than other parts of the year, can you put in a couple tanks? And when the water flow is high, fill the tanks and use the reserves in the tanks to make it through the drier parts of the year. These are questions to get answered before, not after you buy. These are expenses to determine now. Now, because that cheap land could become expensive land. They might say, yeah, we can put a well in. It needs to be 1,000 foot deep and 600 feet of 1,000 feet of pure rock. And it's going to cost you $50,000 put a well in here. But there'll be plenty of water. You need to know that it's fifty thousand dollars to put a well in. It might be, you know what? There's actually most of the desert. There's a shallow aquifer here. We can put a well in for you for four thousand dollars. Right, so those are questions to ask. the The actual stuff that you gave me, in of itself, doesn't frighten me, doesn't scare me away from uh, taking the step and buying the land. If you want a better review of this land, send me an email with a link that describes where this land is. Let me see it on a map. Let me look at avenues in and out of it. Tell me more specifically what you would do with it after the purchase. 
and I'll give you a better answer. And with that, this has been a long show, almost an hour. I thank you for tuning in. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.